0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we consider this morning what it means for us that, Jesus, You are alive. You are truly alive. And as we celebrate this morning our remembrance of Pentecost, we pray that the reality that Your Holy Spirit has descended upon Your church and actually made us into Your body would sink deeply into our hearts. That whether for the first time or the millionth time, we would trust Jesus that You have worked out all things for our salvation, and that we would be given that gift of Your Spirit to guide us and comfort us. Speak to our hearts this morning through Your Word and Your table, we ask in Your name. Amen. You guys remember the movie The Truman Show? Jim Carrey at his finest? I hope you guys realize that I'm always going to spoil whatever movies I use, but that's why I try to use movies that are like 10 years old. Jim Carrey plays Truman Burbank, a man who, completely unaware, has been living in a constructed reality. Right? Remember this movie? He was born on a television set... And for 30 years, he has lived his life on this set, surrounded by actors who are playing his family and his mailman and his friends, and the entire world that he sees is a set that's been built by a TV studio. And everything is going along fine, but he doesn't know that anything's wrong until one day, in a bit of heavy-handed writing, a light literally falls and almost hits him over the head from the sky. And from that moment on, Truman begins to realize that there are little things in his world that seem off. He recognizes a a homeless man in his neighborhood as his father, who was supposed to have been dead, and it was really just an actor that they needed to come back and play another role. And so as he begins to piece together these little things, he tries to escape, and you can watch the movie to find out if he does. But he's working toward this escape to reality. Why? Because his version of reality had been disturbed completely. In this series that we've been going through on encounters with Jesus, most of the encounters we've been looking at have been uh, fairly positive from the outset. There's There's something desperate happening in the lives of people that encounter Jesus, and they're met with healing. They're met with grace and love. And this story this morning with Saul isn't that different, but it starts off very differently, and it's about a man whose entire reality gets disturbed by Jesus. Can you imagine having your orientation to reality so radically altered? Saul had a very particular and a very strongly held view of the world. Saul was one of the most Jewish of Jewish of Jewish of Jewish men you could possibly want to meet. And his credentials within his religious community were sparkling. This is what he lists on his CV. Circumcised on the eighth day, just as the law required. He was born into the tribe of Benjamin the favored son of of Israel, the original royal tribe. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most religious sect within Judaism, and they believed that the exile they were still experiencing in this first century, that they were still sort of under this house arrest. They believed that it could be thrown off by adherence to the law of Moses. And that's what they were living for. That's what they wanted, because as they looked back at the history of, of their nation. They saw that, it would their, that Israel's religious devotion was mixed at best. The people and their kings were constantly disobeying the law that Moses had written down for them, constantly trying to throw off God's rule and do things their own way. And as a result, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you, you would find that eventually God kicks His people out of the land. It says, this covenant that I have made with you was a covenant that you were to obey where I will remove you from the land that I have given you. And they fail to obey, and so he kicks them out of the land. And even when they come back, what they begin to realize is the exile is not over because they're actually coming back being ruled by another nation. And what the Pharisees realize over time as this religious sect sort of starts to grow up within Judaism. They begin to realize that if things don't shape up, life will never get better for the nation of Israel. And they believed that should they be successful in their law-keeping, should they get enough of their countrymen and women to turn their hearts back to God and follow Him in the commands of Moses, that eventually the great and terrible day of the Lord would arrive, the end of the age would come, and resurrection would be there, and Israel would be vindicated, her enemies would be thrown off and trampled to death in the dust. Pharisees had seen so many of their countrymen disregard the teaching of Scripture that they just began to double down in their efforts of living a life that was pleasing to God. And Saul was their rising star. He was young, but he wasn't like all the other kids of his day. He cared deeply for the traditions of his fathers. He was obsessed over making sure the name of God was honored among his people. Saul was the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to bring home on a date. He was the kind of guy that you would want as an elder in your church. And as much as we might vilify the, the, the Pharisees, the reality is that the Pharisees were the people that you would want living in your neighborhood. They were good people. They followed the rules. They did their civic duty. They had nice kept yards. They make the best kind of church people. And Saul was one of the best, but he didn't just talk the talk. He was actually willing to endure hardship and violence in order to stay true to his devotion. In order to make sure that the honor of God's name was upheld. And Luke has actually already introduced Saul to us earlier in the book of Acts at the scene of the very first martyr, at the death of Stephen. And what's happening as is Stephen is, is brought in before the religious leaders of his community, Saul is there listening. And he hears Stephen beautifully sum up the story of Israel's history. And Saul is probably even nodding along with him when Stephen gets to the parts of how Israel has consistently walked away from God as he describes the tragedy of their disobedience. But when Stephen suggests that Israel's history is culminated and summed up in Jesus of Nazareth, Saul loses it along with his entire community. He cannot believe that Stephen would suggest that this disgraced rabbi who died like a criminal would be the one who is the Messiah. And so he stops his ears along with his friends and they scream at the, at the top of their lungs. Why? Because Saul's God was a holy God, an omnipotent God, not a God who hobnobbed with blaspheming losers who sputtered out on crosses. And we're told that Saul oversees the stoning of Stephen. This is how deeply Saul took his devotion to God. He could hear the unmistakable thud of a rock hitting flesh. He watches as Stephen's face becomes an unrecognizable mass of bloody ribbons, and he hears Stephen speaking around the blood pooling in his mouth, asking Jesus, this disgraced rabbi, to accept his spirit, to forgive the men that were killing him. Saul didn't enjoy this sort of thing, but he was willing to endure it. He was willing to do what others in his circles wouldn't in order to keep God's name from being blasphemed. I think it's easy for us to to picture a guy like Saul as one of those fundamentalists who prays super loud at church and then goes home and tortures cats and dogs in his house. But That's not who he is. This wasn't uncontrolled rage. It was the climax of moral Piety. It was the epitome of religious duty. And as our story begins, the renegade sect of Jesus' followers has scattered out from Jerusalem due to this persecution. And Saul is following them, breathing out murderous threats against men and women alike, throwing as many as he could find into prison. And so he undertakes a several days' journey to Damascus. This is how much he cares about keeping God's name holy. And it's possible that as Saul was on this long journey... That he was praying the prayers of his ancestors, that he was repeating the Psalms that he'd memorized, meditating over them, passing over and over in his mind the good and beautiful law of God. And it's possible that as the light strikes him and knocks him to the ground, that he thought that finally, finally, God has come to commission him. God himself, Yahweh, the unspeakable name, has come to confirm Saul's mission, to confirm his place in the community as the purifier. Because Saul had a long line of, of people that he was emulating, just like the tribe of Levi way back when had been called to cleanse the rebels from God's presence. Just like Phineas had been rewarded for his zeal in killing those who refused God's law. See, Luke is describing this scene in terms that would, would have been very, very familiar to someone like Saul, someone who meditated on the Hebrew Scriptures. We call these events theophanies a visible manifestation of god there's always this light involved and there's some sort of communication there's some sort of reassurance that you're on the right path that you're doing the right thing carry on soldier and so as disorienting as the light and the falling to the ground must have been it was the question it was the question that really had saul confused because saul has studied the scene he knows the lines he knows how it's supposed to go it's supposed to say something like go and speak to my people israel Or I have chosen you to be my mouthpiece. Something positive. But what he heard was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And within just a few short words, Saul's entire life is ground to dust. His entire reason for existence, his whole identity is ripped up and thrown to the wind like parade confetti. Because there's no confusing who it is that he's talking with. And who reveals the fact that he knows who he's talking with in his question. Who are you, Lord, he says. Lord, Kyrios. It's the Greek word for the, for the ancient name of God that the people would not speak, and so they would call him Lord instead of Yahweh. It's the name that the Jews would use to honor God lest they speak his hidden name without honor. It's God. But who is he? This isn't going like I thought it would. He's not saying what I thought he'd say. Persecuting? Who are you, Lord? He asks. And the voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And Saul, now blind, is led by his freaked out friends and for three days he exists in darkness. No food and no water touches his lips. But Luke just keeps right on going, and this story is quickly moving from a tragedy to a comedy because Jesus decides to disturb another person, and he appears to one of his followers living in Damascus, a guy named Ananias. Ananias, he says, yes, Lord, I need you to go see a guy. Great, what's the address? It's 123 Straight Street. Okay, anyone in particular? Yeah, actually, it's Saul of Tarsus. He's expecting you. Actually, he had a vision that you're going to come, and you're going to heal him, and it's going to be great. Uh says Ananias. And Luke is using Ananias here as a way of expressing the question that everyone has. Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? I've heard of this guy. He's the one who's done a lot of bad stuff in Jerusalem and he's on his way here, or apparently you're telling me he's already here, to arrest who? Me. And everyone I care about. All of the people who follow you. Resurrected Jesus doesn't really mince a lot of words. He just says, go. I have hand-picked this guy to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias goes. And can you imagine entering that house knowing that inside there's a man who came here to throw you in jail or kill you? He enters with his heart in his throat and he sees the man who came all this way to torture him. He sees the man who watched Stephen lose consciousness and bleed out. And what does he do? He puts his hand on him. And he calls him brother. Brother Saul, he says, the Lord, Jesus. Just so we're clear about which Lord I'm talking about. Jesus, the one who appeared to you, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul's blindness is healed and he's baptized and he gets up and he eats. This story is so incredible and so pivotal in Luke's volume here that he actually tells it three different times in the book of Acts. And each time he has a little bit of a different viewpoint. And in fact, scholars have looked at the three tellings of this story and said, well, it must be made up because he can't seem to get the facts right. But really what's happening is that it's one of those stories that is so huge, so unbelievably epic, that he can't get us to understand it in just one telling, so he keeps retelling it over and over. So as we finish, I would like to just place this telling of the story within what Luke has been doing so far in the book of Acts, and then draw some conclusions for ourselves. See, Luke is a Gentile a non-Jewish person, and he's writing largely to Gentiles. And in his first letter, he worked hard to capture the impossible, that the Jewish God had become a man and entered into the human story in the strangest of ways, in poverty, in obscurity, and that this God-man went about the country teaching and confounding, healing and dividing, that he eventually died an obscure death alongside two criminals, his followers scattered, his revolution a complete failure but then he comes back to life. God became man and died and then came back to life. It's a tale so tall it can hardly be spoken out loud, but it just keeps getting weirder. Luke decides to write a a sequel, a second volume, and this time he talks about how this God-man named Jesus, a very particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, The one who died and has been resurrected now ascends to heaven and leaves his followers to carry on what he's been doing in the world. He tells them the Holy Spirit will be with them, and that's the day that we celebrate today, the day that the Spirit comes down and descends upon the church. And that's when things get really weird. People start speaking languages they don't know. Shadows start to heal people. This new population emerges within Judaism called nothing but the way, followers of the way, and they give up their possessions for one another and they hang out all the time, and some people think they might even be cannibals because they talk about how they eat this man's flesh and drink his blood. And you want to know the weirdest part? Outsiders are being invited in. See, the story of Saul on the road to Damascus comes smack dab in the middle of stories about non-Jews being invited into this community people that do not have the traditional markers of being part of God's people. They don't worship in the temple. They're not circumcised. They eat whatever they want. They dress however they want. And yet they're being brought into this community of Jewish rebels who believe that the long-awaited Messiah has finally come in Jesus. And Saul, the guy whose entire life was based on those Jewish identity markers, those things that set him apart from the rest of the world, the, the, the guy who found his entire meaning in the fact that he is Jewish, it's this guy Luke tells us that is going to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And what Luke is picturing for us in this story about Saul is something that the very same man, the man that we now know as St. Paul, who wrote the bulk of the New Testament, makes explicitly clear for us in his letters, and that is this. All of the old markers of who's in and who's out have been done away with. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, no male and female. And not only that, but Paul tells the church that all of his rule keeping, all of his moral purity, all of his devotion to God before he met Jesus was as worthless as sewage. But even more central to Luke's purpose in writing this second volume for his audience is this Jesus is alive. He's alive. He's real and he's alive. As Stephen is being murdered, he looks up and he says that he sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And when Paul is knocked down and the voice from heaven speaks to him, it's not just any voice. It's the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the one who was dead and who came back to life. It's the world's true Lord. It's the king of the Jews and the ruler of all the earth. And not only that, Not only is Jesus still truly alive, but he's still at work in this world, and he's doing his work in this world, not just through the church, but as the church. Notice that Jesus doesn't tell Saul, hey, when you persecute my friends, it really hurts me too. No, he says, when you're persecuting the church, you are persecuting me. Friends, when, when Saul, who becomes St. Paul, tells the church that we are now the body of Christ, he's not saying it as a metaphor. He's not. It's real. And it's because the Holy Spirit has come. And if you've been baptized into Christ, Christ's church, then the Spirit now dwells in you and you have become literally, actually, the body of the resurrected Christ. So what, is, what does this mean exactly? Exactly. What does it mean that Jesus is at, is at work in this world as the church? Well, first, we have to recognize that, boy, we've done some, some pretty lousy things as the church. So if you're here this morning as someone who has never really been able to, to grab onto this story that the Christian church has said is true of the world... And perhaps you've rejected it because of the way the church has behaved in the past and continues to behave. And you have a hard time reconciling the idea that Jesus, an all powerful, all good, loving God, would work through such a screwed up thing called the church. Let me tell you, you're not alone. We know that we're screwed up. I'm up here talking. Feel free to ask my wife. She can give you a list of ways that I'm screwed up. We know that the things that we often do and say make total nonsense of the story of forgiveness in the Christian gospel. We know that it makes no sense at all that God would choose to work through people like us, and that's why it has to be true. Truth is stranger than fiction. No one would bother to write an origin story like ours. I don't say any of this to excuse our bad behavior, but only to suggest this, that the truly difficult thing to swallow with regard to Christianity is not the fact that Jesus' followers get it wrong so much of the time, but the fact that God doesn't seem to bother much at all to avoid failure. Rather, he embraces it. But for those of you that are here that, that are... Christian, whether you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, we have to recognize that there is a great difference between the religious devotion of Saul and the religious devotion of Ananias. Saul's religious devotion led him to ostracize and cut out people from his community. Ananias' religious devotion allowed him to come in and lay hands on and call brother, the very person that was trying to kill him. No matter how difficult it may be at times, you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you really do believe that Jesus is alive, that through his death and resurrection, you too have been made alive with him. And no no matter how inexplicable it may be, you're now a part of the church, this strange body that acts out as Jesus' hands and feet in the world. But if you're anything like me, it takes about 30 minutes for the message of grace to wear off and we're back to living as if we have to keep God happy by our behavior as if the times that we do it right, he's really glad, and the times when we don't, he's really mad. And what starts to happen is that we begin to watch the borders rather than the center. In order to keep ourselves from feeling like failures, we set ourselves up as the guardians of moral purity, rather than seeing ourselves as the threshold that failures like ourselves can walk upon to get into the church. And in fact, I can't really say it quite right. And so I'll let Saul the murderer have the last word. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has anything of value. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's what we say we believe when we come to this table. We come to this table expressing faith through love that Jesus has done it all for us. So if you're willing and you're able, would you stand and confess your faith along with me? This is from the Nicene Creed, and it's very old, and there are some big words, and even if you don't understand it all, that's okay. But if you're able to stand up and say with assurance that you believe that Jesus has done it all for you, then stand and say these words along with all Christians everywhere. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we come now to this table, it's a continuation of what we've been doing. We are experiencing the true risen Christ in this world, in these elements, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so again, if you're here this morning as someone who has not yet entered into faith, you haven't yet been able to trust that Jesus has done all for you and be baptized into his church, then we would ask that you don't yet come to this table. We're very, very glad that you're here. We would love to talk with you about how you can come to this table soon and come to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And yet this meal is a renewal meal. It's for the people that have already entered in. And So don't come and say something that's not yet true of yourself. The rest of you, if you've been baptized into Christ's church, then come and feed along with those at in town. This meal is for all baptized Christians everywhere. It's a way for us to come and have union with Jesus to feed on our truly risen Lord and Savior. Let's pray together for a meal. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present with us this morning as you were present with the church on the first Pentecost. That you would cause this bread and this wine to be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we would ingest Him, that He would dwell richly in us as a result of us partaking in this meal. We ask in His name. Amen.